Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. Uh, I'm Stuart Garlick and welcome again. Obviously, it's a few days after the um, Puebla E Prix in Mexico. Um, before I introduce uh, Aurora Del Ali, who is uh, my guest this time, um, this is brought to you by the Motion E Patreon. You can subscribe by going to patreon.com forward slash motion if you're interested. Or if you just want to find the free stuff, then you can go to motione.org and you can follow us on on the socials as well. But uh, you can find um, 27 articles on Patreon that you can't find anywhere else. And I think you get some very good value from that. And also plenty of other exclusives as we go through the uh, electric racing season. Anyway, Aurora, it's nice to have you back on the Motion E podcast. Um, how have things been going for you recently? Uh, thank you very much for having me again, Stuart. As always, it's a, it's a pleasure to join the Motion E podcast. Um, things have been going pretty well at the moment. To be honest, I am incredibly busy right now because um, as, you, as you guys might know already, if you listen to other episodes of the podcast, uh, I am completing my education, my master's thesis in um, in law with um, a particular eye on uh, sports law. Um, so yeah, honestly, like it's been it's been all work and no play at the moment. Um, also with the job, of course, um, with Team Lazarus as part of their press office. Um, it's been it's been very hectic in the past couple of weeks. But to be honest, I'm one of those people that just thrives in being very busy, so I can't complain. Excellent. Well, we got plenty to talk about, and um, we'd we'd better start uh, with the thing that most people have taken out of the Pueblo Ypres, which um, I I know um, has been done to death on various outlets, but um, some some quite funny things came out of it. For example, the Formula E penalty generator, which uh, was uh, posted on the on the Formula E subreddit, the unofficial subreddit, um, after uh, after the races. At the weekend and i've just been playing with it constantly ever since because it's hilarious um the one i've got on screen is jean eric verne gets a five place grid penalty for the next race after losing the inside label of his right glove during the race um shall, <laughs> shall we give it another spin and see what the next one is that comes up yeah honestly i've been playing with it non-stop for for the past couple of days as well actually i found your tweet about it, and that's how I discovered about it, Stuart. Um, and I've sent it to my to my friends and colleagues as well, and we've had so much fun with it. And I have one result in particular that I actually took, went through the effort of screenshotting because it was just too <laughs> hilarious, um, which is Eduardo Mortara gets disqualified four minutes after the race after his team shipped in a spare front wing with UPS rather than DHL for the second race of the double leather, which I think it's incredibly funny and also like worryingly realistic. Yeah, so some of these fines, you know, um, and some of the reasons for being fined and penalised, like uh, shipping with UPS rather than DHL, it's the kind of thing where um, it's it sort of hits that uncanny, uncanny valley where um, it's probably untrue, but it's got enough basis in truth for it to seem truthful. Yeah, absolutely. And it's honestly something that it's understandable, but also, quite, as I was telling you, like quite worrying on the perspective of like a championship that is supposed to keep like the, the fans and the audience engaged. Yeah. Uh, the, the other one I've got on screen is uh, Sam Bird gets a £5,000 fine after failing to arm attack mode in free practice two, which uh, so sounds sounds um, tech jargony enough to be true again, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, um, I don't have it on screen right now, but I remember there were many, many um, alleged penalties, which are even that alleged, like of them happened more than once in uh, in the short history of Formula E, but they, they are those about like exceeding maximum power by like a ridiculously small amount, but it's already grant like a disqualification or um, a 10 second penalty or, you know, serious infractions like that. Um, to be honest, Stuart, 
kind of have maybe a controversial take about all of this. I'm Contro not sure you want to hear it, actually. Co controversial takes are all well and good. I, I mean, um, so I, I'm just going to let you do the take and, and then I'll explain what I think. Because, uh, you know, the, the, the reason you're on is to give your take. So go ahead. <laughs> no, actually, you know, I try to see this as I, I try to see most things in life, to be honest, um, from the perspective I, of like I, a law I, student. Can I maybe jump in and say, obviously, we're talking about Pascal Verlein's penalty. Uh, well, two penalties. Uh, on Saturday, he was disqualified from his uh, win on the road uh, in Puebla for failing to dis uh, his team failing to disclose the tyres that both their drivers used. That's poor. Porsche and Nissan as well um, and on Sunday he was uh, demoted from third to fourth place for um, arming fan boost when it was already too late to do so uh, safely uh, battery wise but yes sorry carry on Oh, but I mean, uh, of course, we needed to 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 give context <laughs> to to our controversial takes. But yeah, I think that you know, in in the minds of you know the casual fan or like the casual audience, probably the first disqual the the disqualification on the first race was the one that really struck a nerve. First of all, because of course it was a disqualification coming from a race win, um, and secondly, because like the motivation like if you're just somebody turning on the tv and you know watching a race the motivation can kind of seem absurd to you um but to be honest like i try to see this from the perspective of like a law student and somebody who's in general like passionate about rules and regulations in sports as boring as they might be but to be honest, I think that the main detractors in uh, in form Formula E have always been like, oh, Formula E isn't a sport. Formula E is just, you know, a very beefed up form of entertainment. It has like no actual sporting value. It's just there as a some sort of like a marketing strategy, a marketing prop, um, and just sheer entertainment. Um, and these same people are the ones complaining about regulate sporting regulations being enforced to an extent that they actually like influence the championship and influence the race but it's kind of contra it's kind of contradictory if you think about it like if you complain about formula e only having entertainment value like if that was true i'm sure that the main intention of like race direction or whatever would be to actually gloss over this like very boring technical and sporting regulations just to give you know people the joy of enjoying a very dominant win that has been successful a very dominant race um but it isn't like formula e isn't just entertainment formula e is motorsports and uh, as a very serious form of sports being a world championship regulations must be implemented precisely so, yeah, honestly, I have nothing to say about this. I say maybe we could revise the penalties if we think that like paperwork resulting in a disqualification is a bit too harsh. But I wouldn't complain about the concept per se because it's exactly what sports is about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. And although um, myself and many other people have had, have had fun with the... Uh, um, kind of tropes that Formula E regularly throws up due to its technical penalties. I, I do understand the basis from which they come and um, I, I understand that teams are constantly working on the edge. They're working under very stressful conditions uh, in small garages and with only um, 20 people um, uh, per team. Um, and the problem that you've got is that sometimes um, if if you're if you're not um, constantly looking at everything with a sharp eye, you know things do slip occasionally, and you know things like failing to disclose the tires 
is something that could happen to any one of us uh, if, for example, let's say X or Y driver um, crashes into the barriers and, break, and breaks the uh, front suspension. Well, that means that some of your engineers are going to be spending time on that instead of on, well, doing the things that they could have done um, easily, like disclosing tyres potentially, or like, uh, you know, logging parts or, or whatever it is that engineers do in the garage. So, I do understand why the mistake may have been made, and I understand why it was penalised. Um, I think what I tried to get across in the uh, report, uh, in, in the article I wrote after the race uh, on the website, was the problem to me comes in how it was communicated, and I saw a lot of times in Formula E where crisis communication was explain to the minimum possible level and whatever you do don't apologize and i noticed a, di a, a difference this time there was a change between i think valencia race one where um, bad things happened um, and um, puebla race one where bad things happened i felt that this time they were putting people in front of camera well mostly alejandro agag um, who wanted to front up and apologize and say we'll find ways to make sure this doesn't happen again whereas I felt after Valencia race one, obviously when there was a broader outcry, they did change their their comm strategy there. But to begin with, they were saying, well, you know, teams need to learn from this and they need to be less uh, cavalier with their battery usage. So I, I feel like there is, there, is a, there is a small change in how Formula E is working on these things. Uh, and they're starting to realise that, yes, rules are rules, but... Um, you also have an army of casual viewers who may well turn off because of this. Um, and I wonder, what should the playbook be to properly communicate this and to help casual viewers to understand why these rules are there? Yeah, to be honest, um, I gotta say, I think that the main issue is not even like in communication per se, because I understand that the priority of race direction is just to get the result across not ne necessary to like sweeten the pill for anybody. I think that like probably the main issue with Formula E is that like the decisions made by race direction just come so late. And every single time, like you turn off the TV after watching a race and what happens is that maybe you, you log on Twitter like four hours later and the result that you get is completely different different to what you initially imagined and to what actually was going on the last time you were watching the race. And um, I think that's like a very big turnoff for so many people because of course results can be and must be amended, but I think that the speed in which like you actually tackle the problem is extremely important in actually making it like an enjoyable experience for the audience. Um, yes, and uh, I, I, I must say that if you gave me a choice between a disqualification at the chequered flag and one four hours later, um, then I'd always choose the former, not the latter. But uh, we're talking about two very bad options where, and, and the best of two bad options. Whereas um, with something like this... Um, the FIA and the race directors and Porsche all knew that, and Nissan all knew before the start of race one that the tyres had been not declared or incorrectly declared. And then it just became a political game of, do we protest this? Uh, okay, it looks like we are protesting this. Uh, so uh, that means that... Um, so probably the alternative would have been to have um, said up front at the start of the race um these teams have broken the rules uh, they're protesting uh, how severe the penalty should be uh, so we have to allow them to race under you know the the the, the rules of the day um that might have left a sour taste in people's mouths or it might have led to people switching off because they might have thought, um, well, this this car is contesting the race and it's under investigation and likely to be disqualified and it's leading. So I, I'm not a communications expert and I can't say whether that would be the better option. I suspect that uh, probably Formula E and the FIA and the teams took the view that it wasn't the better option and that's why we ended up with what we did on Saturday. 
Yeah, to be honest, I think that they probably thought that this wasn't a good option because of the nature of the regulation being infringed per se. In the sense that we're talking a very, about a very peculiar case, to be honest. Like, as much as I'm one that is always like uh, advocating for sticking to the rules and getting fair punishment when rules aren't followed, um, to be honest, I think that the root of the problem is that this rule is subject to like scrutiny, not only in the way that it was enforced, but in the way it is formulated per se. Like some people believe it's just too much paperwork, it's just too much stuff that needs to be taken into consideration that is not really that important to sporting regulations and to, you know, the actual sporting result that you get out of the race. And this is up for debate, of course, like you can agree or you can disagree, but it is a matter of fact that some rules are just easier to agree with than others. So I think that in this particular instance, probably um, the race direction didn't want to, you know, make a big fuss out of it before actually, you know, coming with a final decision and a final call on the matter because they knew that people were going to be outraged. They knew that the the, the casual fan would tune in and be like, are we seriously discussing a race win because somebody forgot to fill in paperwork? Which mm. is, again, a fair point from the perspective of a fan, but also something you cannot really overcome from the perspective of somebody taking care of like scrutineering and regulations. Yes, um, and uh, the the fact that the 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 disqualification was announced at the flag uh, suggests that it was probably known uh, well before it was announced, and um, it, it may even have been known uh, before, or at the at, at the very least in the opening laps of the race. So, um, I I felt that the way that um, the uh, nature of the investigation was announced on I think lap ten or twelve of the race um, was a little bit uh, stagey and a little bit false, and um, um, obviously you know uh, the all all sports have an element of staginess in how they in how they um, 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 package their racing and, and 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 package what they're doing to the public. That's that's why uh, that's why football keeps VAR replays generally to a minimum. It doesn't show every single element of every single tackle and foul and uh, offside. But um, I I would like to see more information being given to the public. You know, the thing in my very limited experience with communication is that like. It's impossible to stick to a rule book in the sense that every single situation that arises and need, needs some serious PR to tackle is very peculiar and very, you know, special per se. So you have to apply a lot of like discretionary judgment every single time something arises. Um, I think we had informally, we had like another example of this with, um, was it Edo Mortara's brake failure? Yes. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. And um, there, it, there was like much vagueness about what happened for a very long time. Um, and in these circumstances, I think that truly it's very difficult to judge whether something could have been done differently. And um, I think it's it's something that applies honestly to all facets of, uh, of sports specifically, especially when it comes to like the health and safety of um of the of the athletes we saw that with lynn and even more recently and even more tragically since you were drawing out a football comparison earlier um it happened with christian Eriksen as well mm. like we had a player um in the european um in the euro 2020 uh, literally collapsing from a heart attack on the field during the match and you know the cameras kept on zooming in and it was a very traumatic experience and it it should have been handled better, but as the representative for UEFA communication said, like there isn't a rule book for this stuff. It just happens, and honestly, you don't even know what to do at the moment. So this is a very extreme case and a very traumatizing case. But I think that in general, having a rule book is very difficult, and uh, you know you can reduce the amount of PR slip-ups 
that you come across, but there will always be a PR slip up in some way. Yeah, yeah. And um, ho- hopefully Pascal Verlein and Porsche will get another chance at uh, winning a race because it, it's, it still seems kind of inconceivable that a driver of Pascal Verlein's talent hasn't won a Formula E race after two and a half seasons. Um, I, I, I know that he's uh, had his run-ins with with Mahindra in terms of the end of his contract there, and uh, uh, he um, obviously was 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 a, was a debutante when he came in with them, but it still seems crazy that, um, you know, Stoffel Van Dorn, um, who was obviously a Formula One contemporary of his for some time, has uh, has has now won several races, and Verlein is still there on um, on zero wins. It seems almost unfair on him, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that Pascal um, is a very talented driver, and he's shown his prowess in Formula One as well. Um, I I don't subscribe to the notion that. You know, Formula E is the the graveyard for failed Formula One drivers because it's honestly like a very diminishing and absolutely untrue statement. Uh, but I do think that Pascal should have had like another chance in Formula One because he definitely had the skills and the racecraft for that. Um, but I also think that, to be honest, as of now, at least, Um, He's just been very unlucky in the sense, not even like in the sporting sense, but just in the sense that Porsche is not as ready as Mercedes is, since you were drawing a comparison with uh, Sofa Van Dorn, to be, you know, a race winning team. Of course, they've had their fair share of podiums and of Super Bowls, but there's always something missing in um, when it comes to Porsche. And I can't quite put my finger on it. But it, it, it sounds quite similar to the situation that, that Venturi was having um, up until a few months ago. But yeah, it's, it's always, it always feels like there's something missing to be an actually like very competitive team in terms of race wins and, you know, championship contention. Yeah, and... Um, to to talk to talk about Venturi, um, I have it on the list for later, but uh, let's talk about them now because Mortara won the second race, and um, we we have criticised their race management um, several times on this podcast, uh, you and I, because uh, uh, we both believe that there were avoidable uh, battery and um, uh, power management issues, which uh, which which uh, which they allowed to happen previously. Now. This time, um, at least uh, the races, Sam Smith, uh, the journalist, um, uh, believed that Mortaro was making more of his own calls mid-race. And um, if that is the case, I wonder if that maybe contributed to, well, the excellent management of his race at the front. Because, you know, there were times, particularly after the halfway point in race two, when... Uh, yes, he was one or two seconds in front, but Verline was gaining by um, uh, 0.2 to 0.3 seconds a lap, and it looked like um, a matter of time before he would be overtaken, given how quick Verline had been all weekend. And yet, um, he and Venturi seemed to manage the race incredibly well, and, uh, well, indeed, they crossed the line exactly on uh, 0.0% battery. So uh, they obviously managed the battery absolutely to the limit and did it perfectly. So um, I guess the question is, uh, what went better for them this time? And um, can they repeat it through the season? Um, honestly, like, I'm not sure we will ever have like a definitive answer on whether um, Edo Mortara is making more of his calls or not, um, because I don't think that it's something that a team would be like happy to disclose that openly. But it seems like a very reasonable call and a very reasonable, um, you know, perspective to have in the sense that, to be honest, like Mortara right now has a lot of experience in Formula E. And um, as we've stated many, many times before, because it's it's actually a fact um you know driving a formula e car it's an extremely extremely different experience from driving anything else really so i think that the amount of like knowledge you have on the car as a driver in just in terms of like 
sheer number of races and sheer number of seasons that you've competed in the championship really, really makes the difference. And we've seen it because, to be honest, apart from, you know, a couple very notable exceptions, we've always seen like the most experienced drivers prevailing uh, in the long run, at least. We always see like the, the same five or six people actually get in, you know, in a position to contend for the championship at the end of, of an entire season. Um, so I think that when a driver comes to a point that he understands the car that well, he can really make a difference in terms of like pit wall decisions as well. In the sense that, of course, like engineers do an incredible job and they crunch the numbers and they do it like incredibly well most of the times, but they don't know what it's like actually driving the car and actually taking care of regen in terms of like, you know, how much pressure you're putting on that brake, on the brake pedal. Um, so I think that if somebody with as much experience as Mortara now has with a Formula E car is able to make more of his calls, and he's always been a very intelligent driver, even when he competed in, um, in GT racing, um, I think it can really make a difference. And I think, it, you know, it's actually proven that in the last race. Yes, uh, and um, obviously a, a very intelligent and very controlled drive. And uh, we've... Um, we've we've seen similar good performances sporadically from from Norman Nato through the season. So uh, obviously the Venturi is is a good package. I mean it's it's the Mercedes package, and it looks like they're starting to get to grips with it as well, which is exciting because uh, Mortara is now ten points clear at the top of the championship, which is not something I thought I'd find myself saying. I mean, excellent driver, but uh, he would not have been in most people's lists of favourites to be leading the championship after this many rounds uh, nine rounds so um yeah um excellent stuff for venturi um the question really is whether we will see what happened last season when obviously covid interrupted a lot but last season we saw the teams that were better at development i.e ds to cheetah pulling out more of a gap uh, after the break um with this being a uh, better planned um, calendar um, that we've been able to agree in advance, obviously unlike last year, do you think we'll see the same thing, or might we see Venturi being able to hang on and being able to be able to being able to keep up with the development race uh, with people like uh, Tachita and Jaguar and so on? To be honest, I think that Venturi has a decent shot been in contention for for the championship this year because we've discussed this on the podcast um a couple of times in the past um mercedes uh, hpp in particular so the high performance powertrain department um is really investing a lot of like resources both human and financial resources into the formula e project and um this does not only involve their factory team of course but also their customer team so venturi um, which is, you know, in a very broad sense, a customer team. And, um, you know, talking with people at HPP, um, the, the feeling that I got recently is that there's a lot more interest and there's a lot more effort being put in Venturi than it was before. I cannot tell you the reason for this because I don't know if it was like a corporate decision or or if there's something behind it but I can tell you for sure that for some reason they have decided to to invest a lot more in terms of like time and effort and money um into helping Venturi you know blossom into a team of their own um so yeah I think that this year they might have more chances than they had in the past to actually keep up with the development um, craze. I, so get, that all, always feels like sort of an arms race um, up to the end of the, of the season. While I don't believe that DST Cheetah will be in the same position, because of course they're still very high up in the championship. They're the second team, like the runner-ups at the moment in the team's championship, but they're being, they've been facing a lot of financial struggles and the board of investors at DS 
is really, really looking into the Tichita, the DS Tichita um, endeavor to see how much money they want to put into it. So the fact that they're not even sure if they're going to race next year doesn't give me much hope in the sense of like putting a lot of resources in the in development for the remainder of the season. Well, that's interesting you said that. There's a lot of questions over, I would say, uh, both of DS to Cheetah's drivers. Um, I don't know for sure when Jean-Eric Verne's contract needs renewing, but uh, I do know that he's signed a deal to be a works driver in uh, Le Mans Hypercar with Peugeot, and they will at some point want him to do some testing with that. So uh, um, obviously Peugeot and Citroën and DS are both part of the Stellantis group, so there's no problem, there's no clash with him doing that. But uh, there, there may come a point in every driver's career when they decide to focus on one thing rather than double jobbing. Um, Antonio Felix da Costa had an IndyCar test at the end of last year and really liked it and has been waxing lyrical about what, uh, what it means to drive an IndyCar. And I, I think... Maybe the reputational boost he gets from being from being a champion um, in the top level of motorsports now means that he might want to cash that in and uh, get a drive with a decent IndyCar team while he, while he's while he's still young. So um, th- there is the question of if they lose Vern, um, who obviously is a minority shareholder in the team, or De Costa, or both. Um, will they will they want to go again? It's it's the old uh, if Mercedes loses Lewis Hamilton argument, isn't it? Uh, will is is there the will to go again? I mean, uh, Tachita was formed uh, around a Chinese consortium, and um, we all know from other sports, particularly football, that um, Chinese investors are at the mercy of government policy. So there's a lot of questions around there, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like to to get a better perspective on the um, on the Cheetah situation, we shouldn't look much at Vern, which of course is a minority share, shareholder, but in terms of like contract, he is tied to DS and per extension to the PSA group, of course, given also his contract with uh, Peugeot. Uh, I think we should look more into Da Costa actually because as far as I know, um, my information should be correct, but I'm not like giving it a hundred percent. Um, his contract is actually not with DS because he didn't want to be like a PSA factory driver, let's say, but it's directly with Tuchita. So I think that at the moment, like looking at what Da Costa is doing, like if he's exploring other possibilities. Is can can give like a lot more indication on what the future holds for the ST Cheetah than to see what Vern is doing. Because to be honest, like Vern already has a safety net within the PSA group. And considering that his contract is with the PSA group, I'm sure, like, of course, I'm sure he wants to stay in Formula E, but he's not gonna stress about it because he already has a very profitable endeavor within PSA, which is something that uh, Da Costa at the moment doesn't have. Um, Antonio has always has also been enjoying um, a lot of success at the moment, considering like the fact that he basically started last year uh, in endurance um, in the ELMS and uh, in the WEC, of course, with uh, Jota. And um, among his teammates, there are also like Toffel Van Dorn, for example, uh, Sean Gelael and Tom Blomqvist, as always, like Formula E and Endurance pretty much have the same stable of drivers. Um, so, yeah, I think that I would be looking more attentively to what Da Costa is doing to, you know, get a better understanding on the situation. Yeah, and um, in, in Portimao, where the last uh, WEC round took place, uh, I believe he won the LMP2 class and um, uh, yes. put, put in some stellar laps as well, according to the race report I read. So, uh, yeah, um, Da Costa definitely um, a hot property, I would say, in any form of motorsport at the moment. Um, yeah, and... I, I also we should mention that uh, team Ch- team to cheetah which is nothing to do with with ds but still part of the uh, same ownership uh, group uh pulled out of extreme e before the start of the season so there are some financial constraints evident there um if 
if DS and or Tachita do pull out of Formula E, and obviously this is information that you're giving us, and I can't confirm or deny that, but if they do, I don't think anyone should look on it as uh, an example of Formula E being marketable or not, because... Um, to to me, I was looking. I was looking at DS's um, uh, electric vehicle uh, promotion, and I mean, you never ever see an electric DS on the road in the part of the world where I am. Um, I I saw I saw a couple of hybrid models uh, in the in the car park of the Ricardo Ricardo Tormo circuit when I was there for testing. Um, when obviously they were they were you know you know provided to team members, but. Um, I think uh, somewhere in the PSA shakeup, where it became part of the Stellantis group with Fiat, uh, it feels like uh, the push on marketing DS's electric and hybrid vehicles has not failed, but it's fallen by the wayside a bit compared to their promotion of other cars. And um, I wonder if maybe the Formula E side could have got more of a push from uh, Citroen and DS corporate there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that, to be honest, like the electric line of DS, which nowadays I think is the entire line, because if I'm not mistaken, they've electrified the entire production line, so they shouldn't have any more um, combustion cars. Um, I think it's a very, like, they have a very limited market share and a very limited, like, target for that matter, because I feel like it's not an electric car for you know, a regular consumer, it's kind of, it's kind of fallen into the luxury electric car, um, you know, division, which to be honest, like it's completely saturated by Tesla in, in the sense of like, um, you know, what's be, what's being trendy, what's something that equals to a status symbol of some sort. Um, and I don't feel like there's much space for DS in that sense because they're clearly luxury cars in the sense that, first of all, they're expensive. Like, they're not exactly like a Toyota Igo in terms of, uh, you know, how much money you need to actually buy it. But also, like, the amount of detail that goes into, like, um, the interiors and stuff like that clearly tells you that they're trying to tap into that, you know, high luxury market which i don't think that at the moment they can have much success in so yeah to be honest like to sum it up i haven't seen it and ds electric car out on the road in italy i think ever so hmm. um yeah but uh if, it'll be interesting to see what they do um I, obviously uh the uh from a personal point of view uh it um They've done a great job in uh, taking Formula E um, to uh, the manufacturers that are possibly offering more resources to their teams, uh, such as, well, it seems to me, Mercedes. But uh, um, it and it, it would be a shame if they did go. Uh, but um, all, all things must pass at some point. And um, that's something as well that uh, points us towards BMW i Andretti and the performance of their drivers and also the performance of the Audi drivers. Let's let's begin with Audi because Lucas Degrassi showed again the racecraft that we all know he has. But I think I've I've almost taken it for granted in recent years because um, you, you know when when you see Degrassi making his way from uh, the middle of the grid to uh, third or fourth or even first, you think well that's what he does, but. Um, it, it's worth stating again, he is one of the best racers. He's got a great racer's brain there, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Lucas' intelligence, which is not only like racing intelligence, he's just a very, like an incredibly smart person, uh, really shines through and combined with his experience and also like his racecraft per se. He's an aggressive driver, but... Um, he really goes for that gap when he sees one, um, makes him like a very good fit for, for Marie in general. And yeah, I agree that, you know, oddly enough, not in terms of results, of course, but like in terms of, you know, the public's perception, I don't think he's given the recognition that he deserves. As you were saying, yeah, I would agree that people kind of take him for granted in the sense that you just expect him to be at the top of his form every single time. 
failing to see that other drivers that are just as experienced um, aren't always as consistent in terms of results, which of course it's partly due to the fact that you know the Audi team is a very is a is a founding team and it's um it's a very well sustained endeavor in the sense that they invest in development they have amazing development drivers and test drivers so of course he always is always at a reliable car but for example this year honestly the Audi powertrain is not up there with the others like it is not, it's not it's just not fast enough like they don't have the usual reliable package that they've always had but they're very lucky because they have two incredible drivers in uh, Degrassi and Russ yes and uh, not pouring any shade on Daniel Apt because he performed uh, very well uh, in um Audi's uh, first few seasons in Formula E but uh, I felt that when Audi were forced to make that change and they chose Rene Rast rather than any other driver, such as, for example, Nico Muller, they did so because Rast came with a vast amount of experience uh, from winning in other forms of motorsport, particularly DTM. But he, he'd also shown them um, a kind of uh, technical input that they maybe felt they couldn't get from necessarily um, many other drivers. And I wonder how much uh, with, with Rene Rast, uh, the, the way that he's caught up with Degrassi in a very short time and is now his match in terms of speed and in terms of race management, is due to the way that he applies himself technically. I mean, he does seem from his persona to be one of the drivers who spends more time on data than anyone else yeah absolutely um in my experience with uh, rust as a driver uh back in uh, in dtm um i would say that he's like i would i don't want to sound stereotypical but i'm sure you get what i mean he's a very typically german driver in the sense that he's always been very like um, reliant on data and um, on, you know, always pushing to improve his performance. He's a very, very level-headed person, not only in terms of like a racer, but also in terms of like his everyday life, which I think is something that, you know, is not necessarily, you know, it doesn't make or break a driver, but it gives you, it gives you a perspective on what a driver really prioritizes. Um, and uh, yeah, he's always been, he's honestly always been like that. And um, I don't know if you remember, but back at the start of, um, not not even at the start of the season, because he already uh, came into into Audi back in the, in the Berlin uh, six-header, basically, uh, because Abt was already sacked. But, you know, many people were like, Who's Rene Rast? Which is is a fair point because if you've only followed like single seater racing uh, and stuff like that, you probably wouldn't have heard of Rene Rast. But when I heard that Rene Rast was coming in Formula in Formula E, I was absolutely stoked. And in in my books, he was already a favorite. Not I wouldn't say a championship contender because of course we know how Formula E is. But definitely, you know, a favorite for race wins and podiums. And he's already proven that. So, um, yeah, to be honest, I don't have much to add because to me, this wasn't a surprise at all. Like, it was absolutely par for the course and absolutely was what I was expecting from a driver of the caliber of Rene Russ. Yeah, and we've we've almost got the problem that uh, there there are too few teams confirmed as competing next season, and too and too many very high quality drivers um, who are on the market uh, at the moment. Now, um, obviously, Audi will have an uh, LMDH, um, a a Le Mans um, uh, sports car racing um, um, car coming up, and uh, they will be. Uh, I would assuming um, chaining Rast to whichever radiator they have to make sure he doesn't leave Audi because he's just the perfect driver to have on the roster. Um, 
The question then is, um, do you think they could possibly loan him out to another Formula E team, for for example, Envision Virgin, if they continue to be Audi customers? Um, and would they ever consider loaning him out to a non-Audi-related team? Or do you think Rast will remain Mr. Audi throughout the rest of his career? Well, I gotta say that in terms of like my experience with um, the corporate world of Audi, um, I have some friends in um, between the Audi factory driver program. And um, the one thing that they all agree on is the fact that Audi, like unlike other factory programs, which no shade, but of course, like everybody, you know, has its way of, um, of catering to the needs of their drivers. Audi literally never leaves drivers behind in the sense that like, being forsaken from an Audi driver factory program is not something that happens lightly. And um, Audi drivers are usually like, I wouldn't say prevented, but they're definitely like discouraged from taking other endeavors with other teams. Like it doesn't even matter if you don't have any like incompatibilities in terms of like you're competing in a different championship with a different team. like. The, the Audi factory driver program really feels like a family to an extent. And um, if you decide to, le to leave, of course, it's on your own volition. But if you want to stay, like regardless of the championships in which Audi is competing in, you will always find a place. And I think this is this is proof because they have, first of all, like different layers from for the um, their factory program because they have Audi Sport which right now comprises Formula E in the car and, um, and will comprise, of course, LMDH. Um, and they have like the Audi customer racing program, which is basically their GT3 endeavors and GT2 endeavors. And um, regardless of that, like drivers are always encouraged to, to join in factory programs, like not even caring too much about their level of, you know, expertise and performance compared to others. That's why I say it feels like a family. Like you can see Rene Rast competing in Formula E and uh, not in the same year, but like last year, for example, he was also competing in like the Nürburgring 24 hours, which is of course a very important um, race, but is also like catered a bit more to pro-arm drivers. So um, yeah, I don't think, I don't think Audi is gonna let him go anywhere to be honest <laughs> and um if if we assume that that's the case for rast well um it's got to be the case for one of their longest serving drivers uh degrassi so um some people have suggested that degrassi should be on um every team's shopping list for next season because of the sheer level of, of experience he brings but um with Degrassi, it's complicated a bit more by the fact that uh, he's wedged himself so closely to Formula E, so you just can't imagine him driving for his main job um, any uh, um, ICE-powered uh, um, racing car, whether that happens or not. And also, um, he has been with Audi for so long, so, it, you know, to see Degrassi getting into, well, a DS to Cheetah, for example, just seems inconceivable. Um do, do you think Degrassi will move into uh, motorsport politics after this season or will he want to remain a racing driver? What, If you look at the crystal ball, what do you think he'll want to do, um, assuming Audi don't have a driving Formula E for him next season? <laughs> well, um, to, be saying, like, to, to be honest, Degrassi can be an unpredictable character, so it's very difficult to actually say what he's going to do next, but... I think he's a he's somebody who like generally loves racing because to be honest he is the kind of person that with a mind like he has because he's generally one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life uh, and I'm not exaggerating like I don't necessarily condone everything he thinks or he says but he's definitely a very very intelligent person like mm. he could have done anything else in, in his life apart from racing and he would have succeeded like enormously so if he decided to be a racing driver it's because he really loves racing um but i also think that considering first of all that he's um he's a family man and i'm not just saying it but 
I'm saying it because he really cares about his family. He's a he's a big family guy. Um, and considering that he has so many endeavors and so many, you know, possibilities of being successful doing something else, I think that he would only like continue racing if it was for like a winning team. He would he wouldn't be the guy to just go anywhere just to race. He wouldn't be the guy to go to Neo. Of course, Neo. I I doubt that Neo can afford can afford him, but he wouldn't go there just because he wants to be on the grid. He would only remain on the grid if he thinks that he can win, because eventually he wants to win. So, yeah, I would say that it's either like staying with a successful team within Formula E, or maybe going in another championship, but still with a successful team because he wouldn't settle for anything less. Or, yeah, like being an entrepreneur or being into like the FIA board, something like that. I definitely see Lucas going into that sort of endeavor in the future. Yeah. Um, th- the other the other thing I would say is that uh, um, so I, I used to write about cricket and um, there, there was um, there, there was a phrase that an Australian cricketer used. Um, it, so, so he said, lots of people think cricket is a game, but we think cricket is psychological warfare. And I've always felt that Degrassi brings <laughs> the same brings the same attitude towards his racing. Um, so, be, because he is um, obviously a clutch driver who comes up with the goods when he's when he's when when his need when it's needed. Um, but he also um, isn't afraid of having um, uh, verbal run-ins with other drivers, of calling people out in the press. Um, he has made a lot of enemies, and I think everyone is professional in, in motorsport. And if if Lucas Degrassi joined your team, then you'd put away your personal grievances and get on with it because, you know, he's going to make your team better. But um, I was just... I was just chuckling and looking down the grid and thinking, who 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 could he partner who he hasn't had a run in with? I I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think for example, uh, you know, Mitch Evans or Sam Bird and Degrassi at Jaguar would be uh, just a, a combination for the ages, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But maybe he'll surprise us all and just. I don't know, join Sebastian Buemi and Nissan now that Oliver Rowland is supposedly rumoured to go away. <laughs> Quick note here from the editor. Uh, we now know that Oliver Rowland has signed with Mahindra for next season. Oh, Lordy, C- can you imagine? I-, I was actually thinking about this last night, but <laughs> Buemi and Degrassi, obviously the two um, original uh, titans of Formula E, uh, the-, the two titans of the Gen 1 era, but... Um, Yes, uh, I I think there would be plenty of uh, plenty of time to play back Montreal season three and have a chuckle before they joined with each other, wouldn't there? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> but uh, I mean, obviously, we've just said they're professionals; they would get on with it. But uh, um, do, do you think uh, do you think they would even consult Boemi on that kind of thing, or or uh, if if it were to happen, would would they just uh, would they just say, well, you're a contracted driver, here's your new teammate? Do things really work in that way anymore? Like, of course, it's just it's just wild speculation for me right now. Mm-hmm. I have no reason to believe this is going to happen, but um, I think that somebody like. A decision this big without consulting the other driver can definitely happen, like and probably most of the times it happens, but not when the driver is Sebastian Buemi and the team is Nissan, in the sense that like when a driver has been so integral to your, you know, success and to your results, you will definitely hold them in a different position and in a different esteem when it comes. To these decisions like you want to make your winning driver happy and this is just part of business really um now i would definitely think that nissan would consult Wemi be- before making uh, such a decision of course again we're wildly speculating but i wouldn't be so sure that Wemi would be like so adamant in not wanting degrassi honestly like I don't know him personally, but he seems like the guy that would actually like accept and cherish the challenge. 
Of course, it would be a nightmare situation for the team, <laughs> but but yeah, no, I think that he would actually agree and he would actually have his fun. No, I I, I think I think people age and people change, and um, I I I I don't think for a moment it's going to happen, but uh, it's an entertaining prospect that I'm enjoying the speculation on. Um, now, Oliver Rowland leaving Nissan um, came as a shock, uh, particularly because it was completely, according to uh, the press, his decision to leave. Um, and um, Nissan seemed fairly, or at least on the outside, they seemed fairly relaxed about that decision. Tommaso Volpe has said, We're also, we, we also constantly look at the market. Um, they seem to have an idea of who might replace him. But um, Roland seems to be quite clear who he's moving to, and it's just a question of when it can be announced. Um, leaving aside which team he's going to, because we don't know yet, um, how highly do you rate Oliver Rowland um, against the rest of the FE grid? And is he someone who could bring something much better to any team he joins? To be honest, I gotta say that I think that in the current grid, or I wouldn't say necessarily the current grid, but for the past couple of years, I think that all in all, the two Olivers, as I like to call them, are two of the most, like, are definitely the most underrated drivers on the grid. Turvey, because of course, like, he isn't in a team that allows him to show his racecraft, but everybody, everybody in the paddock agrees that he's a fantastic racing driver. And um, Roland, to be honest, I don't know why, because he's had, you know, he's had his success with uh, with Nissan. So um, I think that, like, his being underrated comes from, you know, his understatement in the sense that he hasn't been able to become a fan favorite because he's very private and he really doesn't care about, you know, um, PR stunts and stuff like that. He isn't, a, he isn't really a media guy. Um, but yeah, I would definitely, definitely rate him very highly and up there with the the more the more popular names in Formula E. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm 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 sure wherever wherever he goes, uh, like I say, he he will he will add something to that team's performance because uh, well, he's been tremendous this season. Um, by the way, quick rundown of the uh, uh, championship standings. Obviously, Mortara leads with 72 from Frines with 62. But then you've got De Costa and Rast equal on 60. And, uh, well, we've already covered Rene Rast, but uh, that's that's a fine showing for him, particularly because uh, in both races in Puebla, he uh, qualified relatively poorly for different reasons. And uh, that uh, second race, that uh, 24th up to uh, 10th uh, fin place finish was 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 a masterclass in how to avoid incidents on a tight Formula E circuit, wasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, one last thing to cover, because uh, we both kind of sounded rather perplexed when Jake Dennis joined BMW I Andretti. I asked you, uh, what does he bring that uh, any driver we were speculating might join doesn't? And... Um, I mean, you had you had some knowledge of him from uh, closed wheel racing, but um, it was it seemed to us like a James Collado decision. It was someone coming in out of left field to Formula E, and we weren't sure at that stage what he would bring. His performances in the first couple of races weren't great because it was acknowledged he was getting used to the car. But then it all came good with that win in Valencia, and he was on fire all the way through the Puebla we weekend, and um, at least on qualifying pace, he seemed to have the match, or at least the measure, of Max Gunter. So um, where has this improvement come from? I, I don't feel comfortable being proven wrong. How about you? to be honest i love being proven wrong when when it when it comes to this stuff like I, I i love my expectations to be subverted this way and uh i have to say i also enjoy not having like the last word or not having a, an i told you so moment because generally up to this moment i have no idea of why jake dennis is being so good I don't want to sound rude. I don't want this to sound mean. I know it can sound mean, but genuinely, like it's a generally matter of fact in the sense that I can't put a finger on what it is that makes him like so competitive 
when, you know, looking rationally at, you know, his racing background and the fact that he has so little experience in Formula E, there was no reason to believe that he would have been competitive. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely like it's a curveball for me, to be honest. It's something that I still cannot possibly grasp. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just love having a, another good contender on the grid, to be honest, uh, as always. Um, we don't like, you know, slackers and people who are just, you know, just going to be backmarkers and we know that we're that they're going to be that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have to be completely honest. Again, I don't want to sound mean, but to be honest, like his performance in sports car racing wasn't the sort of thing that made me think, oh yeah, this guy is going to be good no matter what he races. And it's not the first time that I've been proven wrong. Like, for example, you were, you were mentioning Colado before, but you know, I had high expectations for Colado. And I think that in the end, like his former story is a bit more complicated than it, it what it's painted out to be. Like it was, of course, like his debut season was the Corona season. It was a very, it was a very weird time to debut in the series. Um, but yeah, like in that instance, or even with Rust, even if they hadn't had like any single seater experience in a, more than a decade, you have like a multiple. 24-hour Love Le Mans winner and you have a multiple DTM champion, you just know that they're going to be good because they're, you know, they're proven racing drivers. With Jake Dennis, it's not that he wasn't good, it's just that he didn't have, you know, any peculiar results to his name. So I really had no reason to believe that he would have been, you know, that much of a surprise. But hey, um, I mean, I'll get back to you when I have an answer for that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And um, uh, it, it would be great to talk to Jake Dennis at some point this season to find out where he thinks the improvements come from. Because, you know, so, sometimes interviewing racing drivers can be, can be um, I, I don't want to say a dull experience, but uh, you, you know what they're going to say because they don't want to offend the people who are paying their wages. But uh, Dennis comes across on his social media like the sort of bloke who understands he's underrated and gets motivation from that. So um, I'm, I'm going to ask BMW's press office for a chat to him at some point because I think that would be fascinating. Um, yeah, definitely. Oh, so upcoming races then. We haven't got many left. Uh, we've got a double header in New York on July 10th and 11th. Uh, then July 24th and 25th, we've got the London E-Prix, uh, finally, which was suspended last season, but great to see that taking place in Docklands. And then August 14th and 15th, it's the Berlin double header. Um, obviously, London, it's a new circuit. Are you most excited for that? Or does the return to New York or uh, Berlin um, offer more excitement for you? To be honest, I mean, London is a new venue. Is that sort of like um, half behind, half closed, half open track? I don't know. It's 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 gonna be interesting for sure. I have to say, I'm not familiar with that part of London. Um, I've been to London multiple times, but I've never been over there. So I don't know. You know how it actually fits into the into the the the, the city landscape uh, but yeah no i'm definitely interested to see to see a new track so um, yeah i'm mostly looking forward to london i would say yeah um it, it it'll be a great end to the season regardless of uh what happens and um it, it's also always great to have new tracks on the calendar because they they bring something unexpected um as we found uh, last weekend so aurora thank you so much uh what are your plans for the rest of the summer and um are you uh, are you planning to do some traveling uh, can you travel at the moment well, my summer is going to be all work and no play as always. <laughs> no, to be honest, I mean, uh, I'm supposed to finish my thesis this summer, so it will mostly be, yeah, working, but hopefully it will be, you know, uh, at the beach. I hope to go back home because I come from southern Italy originally, although I live in Venice. So I hope to go back home and uh, spend some time with my best friend and my boyfriend, hopefully. 
And um, if all goes to plan, I should be attending a couple more races with uh, Team Lazarus at the GT Open. And if all goes to plan again, I have a couple of commissions uh, for the six hours of Monza, the, the WEC race in Monza. Mm. And uh, I'm incredibly stoked for that. And I hope that everything goes to plan because I really want to see hypercars up close. And um, yeah, so hopefully in um, July 18th, yeah, July 18th, I will be in Monza for the wet round. Oh, and that would be spectacular. And um, obviously every time anyone comes on the podcast i i give them a chance to promote what they want to promote so uh um i guess team lazarus's social media where can they find them and also uh what have you produced that you'd like to uh tell us about and uh, where we can find it at the moment i'm still working with my my main contractor let's say for for endurance and sports car racing uh, which is f1 in generale um it's an italian magazine so if there are any italian readers um they can um they can enjoy our content over there and then i've made a conscious decision to pretty much disappear from social media in my you know professional form I just have like my private social media for now because I really wanted to disconnect and uh, find a, a different way to to do my job. Uh, so yeah, I would definitely pull, uh, plug the um, Team Lazarus social media. You can find us at official Team Lazarus on uh, Instagram and Team Lazarus on Twitter for any racing updates on the GT Open season. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening to the Motion E podcast. Uh, you can find more stuff to read on motion.org, motion.org, sorry. And um, you can also uh, subscribe, if you wish, to Patreon for even more content on patreon.com forward slash motion.org. Uh, if you've got any questions or suggestions for future podcasts, then you can write to me at motioneorg on Twitter. Um, so, Aurora, thank you so much, and um, we'll speak to you all again soon. Bye-bye.